This is Carrie Gephardt, and you're listening to Five for Fruit, your five-minute fix for Reformed theology and practice. What we do here is go back, 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 back. You're now listening to a special edition episode of Five for Fruit with Carrie Gephardt. On special edition episodes, Carrie interviews authors, fellow podcasters, believers, and just about anyone you can think of. And they have wonderful discussions, but it takes longer than five minutes. No! 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 So now you have been warned, but I pray you'll listen, learn, and grow. Now, DJ, hit that track. Let me start this off with a hallelujah to Jesus, the sovereign ruler. This is not a rumor. Got the truth, so we about to school you. Check out a style maneuver. Shout it to you like the loudest roof. Of Christ brought us up from out the sewer. We don't have to doubt the future. Crafting our verses as we bask in his worship. You asking the purpose, partly to snatch cash from the furnace. Through Jesus' extravagant service. Welcome to a special edition episode of Five for Fruit. You've heard the warning. This podcast is going to be longer than five minutes because I have a very special guest on the podcast today. So far, we've been talking about covenant theology, the doctrines of grace, and I thought what better way to sum up that series and knock it out of the park with the big finale than to have on uh, my doctrine professor and president of Mid-America Reformed Seminary, Dr. Cornell Venema on the podcast to discuss uh, an area of expertise for him, which is covenant theology. And it is not uh, not a coincidence. It's providential that Dr. Venema has uh, released and published a uh, recent book, uh, very recent, called Christ and Covenant Theology, which is published through um, Presbyterian and Reformed Publishing, or PNR. And uh, I'm going to have him on the podcast as a guest to discuss the book. And so uh, I'd like to give Dr. Venema an opportunity to say hello. How are you doing, Dr. Venema? I'm doing very well, and I'm looking forward to our conversation about the whole subject of Christ and covenant theology, what the scriptures teach about the theme of covenant. I know there are a number of issues disputed, both within more narrowly the Reformed, theological tradition, but more widely as well within the evangelical churches regarding covenant theology. So I'm pleased for the opportunity. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, So as I I will just give a heads up, I have not had the opportunity to read the book yet. I have purchased it and I'm looking forward to looking at it and getting into it. Um, But maybe the first question I would have is, um, why did you feel that this was a a book that uh, was worthy of publishing, that that needed to be uh, put out there for, for people to read? Well, the book itself actually was generated over a long period of time. Through the years, I've written off and on a number of essays in various theological journals, primarily in our seminaries, Mid-America's Journal of Theology, on various facets of past and present discussions regarding the doctrine of the covenant. And I was graciously granted a sabbatical by the Board of Trustees at the seminary, and I thought, well, to give that material a wider audience, make it more accessible, I would rework a number of those essays and put them together in a collected uh, place and um, 
that's the background to the book. So right. the, the chapters are, in some cases, more a positive exposition of a doctrine or a facet of covenant theology. Mm-hmm. In other instances, they're sustained evaluations or critiques of contemporary formulations on certain disputed issues with which I take exception. Uh-huh. Uh, I, generally speaking, argue and maintain that the point of view that I espouse is fairly in the middle of some of the debates historically in the Reformed churches, falling neither to the left nor to the right, but what I think Francis Turton would call the consensus opinion. Uh That's obviously uh, open to dispute, but I think some of the problems more recently have come about because certain formulations of the Doctrine of the Covenant have taken on a new form or given a new expression that I don't find particularly helpful. For example, I deal with something called the Federal Vision, which is a reformulation of the Doctrine of the Covenant within the context of a Reformed and maybe Presbyterian outlook. Right. But I believe some of the things that Federal Vision theologians are seeking to resolve they actually aggravate problems and overstate things or set themselves up, put forward a position that upon more careful scrutiny proves not to be uh, one that I think is to be commended. That's helpful. Um, I know that on the podcast we've been uh, talking about the distinctives of being a Reformed Christian, and one of those things that I mentioned was that a Reformed Christian— believes covenant is uh, important. It's an important understanding for uh, the way that we look at uh, the scriptures, redemptive history, uh, and covenant theology is something that is going to, in, in a very real way, separate the Reformed Christian, whether it's Presbyterian or Continental, um, from other various denominations or streams of, of tradition. Um, if you had to define covenant theology... Um, how would you how would you describe that? Well, that's a big, in short, <laughs> fairly open-ended question. I would start with a bit of a disclaimer, which says we are not intending to articulate a doctrine of the covenant that takes the focus off the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. One of the reasons I chose the title I did, Christ and Covenant Theology, is I want to underscore the fact that at the center of all of God's gracious and redemptive work in history in restoring fallen sons and daughters of Adam to fellowship with himself is the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. For example, just as a simple example, the mother promise of Genesis 3.15, the seed whom the Lord would give to the woman, the seed of the woman, and that seed is later more fully uh, set forth in terms of the promise to Abraham and his seed, as Paul says in Galatians, the language is not seeds, but seed. That seed is Christ. Right. So all of God's purposes in covenant to restore fellowship between himself, triune, and fallen sinners, all of the human race, without exception, every individual member of that race, 
is by virtue of Adam's fall, uh, by nature an object of God's wrath and uh, outside of the covenant and fellowship communion with God for which we were first created. So that the covenant is broadly speaking the instrument Mm -hmm. by which God is pleased to work his gracious purposes for his people and for those, the elect in particular, whom he has purposed to restore through Christ to fellowship, communion, union and communion with the true and living God. That's the heart of covenant. In fact, if readers uh, were to get no further than the foreword to my book, Mm -hmm. they would read an essay by Sinclair Ferguson in which Ferguson makes the point that Jesus Christ is the covenant or the covenant is all about what God has done for his own people through Jesus Christ right. and by the Spirit as he draws them through the word concerning Christ to faith and repentance, they're brought into and restored to that covenantal fellowship with him that was enjoyed by Adam, though only in part and not in a perfected way, uh, before the human race was plunged into sin. The whole point of all that is to say, uh, we're not talking about an abstraction. Right. We can formulate it in terms of theological and biblical categories, the doctrine of the covenant, or covenants, because there's a distinction to be made between mm-hmm. the pre-fall covenant relationship called commonly the covenant of works and the post-fall relationship, the covenant of grace. But even within the covenant of grace throughout the course of redemptive history, there are diverse administrations of the covenant. Right. But it's always at the center. The focus is upon being restored to life and communion with the living God through the mediator of the covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ. So covenant theology is not an attempt to take us away from Christ, but to point us to Christ and to place all of the focus upon him as our mediator, as the one who redeems us and restores us to covenant. So covenant theology is Christian theology. Exactly. It's not accidental that our canon the scriptures of the Old and New Testament right. is given to us in the form of a covenant. We have an Old Testament or covenant. Right. We have a New Testament or covenant. And the Old is in the New revealed and the New is in the Old concealed. Yeah, Augustinian. Those are not radically disparate or in conflict with one another covenants. But the history of God's work of redemption in the Old Testament is in preparation for its fulfillment As the author of Hebrews says, in these last days, God has spoken to us in his own Son. Right. But that's in fulfillment of the promises he made to his people under the type and shadow of the Old Testament economy. I've been, uh, we've been studying the catechism in the evening at church, and I've been struck with the way that the catechism, Heidelberg Catechism, talks about the Holy Gospel in sweeping ways that maybe many people would not think to do so today, you know, uh, God begins to reveal this through the, through his gospel in uh, paradise and so on mm-hmm. and so forth all the way down throughout uh, covenant history or, or redemptive history. Um, the gospel is inclusive, at least for the catechism writers of all of uh, scripture, because um, most importantly, the gospel points to the good news that we have in Jesus Christ. 
Um, so all of Scripture culminates and is pointing to, or it's either pointing yeah. forward or pointing back to what Christ has, has done for us. Um, I, I guess uh, another question I would have for somebody who maybe is considering picking up the book Christ and Covenant Theology, which they can purchase on Amazon, right? They certainly And can. if you do smile at Amazon.com, you can support MidAmerica Reformed Seminary, right? That is correct. Or you can go to PNR's website and purchase the book from them as well, correct? Yes. Uh, all right, so I wanted to make sure people knew uh, where to get that. But uh, who do you think that this book uh, is for? Uh, do you think this is for? Uh, and I obviously b- believe in that anybody could benefit from it if they uh, place themselves to the challenge of, of working through the essays. Um, but who do you think that this book is, is most going to benefit? Um, is it the minister? Is it the uh, office bearer, the, the layperson? Um, who did you have in mind by putting this together? Uh, in a book? I would judge that the book would be most useful for certainly pastors mm-hmm. and and ministers who are interested in the theme of covenant and scripture and the relationship of the, of the Old Testament to the New and issues like that and how they handle the scriptures in preaching and teaching. I deal with a number of the common issues that are disputed in terms of covenant theology, whether the children of believing parents in the new covenant administration should also receive the sign and seal of their belonging to and being recipients of the covenant's promise Mm -hmm. uh, through baptism. So it it, certainly for a a minister who's interested in the issues, even a, a, a Baptist minister who maybe is persuaded in terms of doctrines of grace, but has questions about... I have a chapter, for example, on the whole issue of covenant theology and baptism, and especially the issue of whether children in the New Covenant should receive uh, Christian baptism. It certainly would be a book for students on various sides of issues relating Mm -hmm. to the doctrine of the covenant who are in seminary or at a theological school or a Bible school or Christian college. Right. I also hope... There are portions of the book that at times you may have to put your thinking cap on, and it may sound a bit academic, as uh, uh-huh. Sinclair Ferguson acknowledges in uh-huh. the introduction. But he says, don't you know, give up, because it'll repay study. Uh, I hope it, it's a book that's accessible to the proverbial man or woman in the pew right. who has a theological interest in uh, how we interpret the Scriptures, and I, I, certainly for those who get caught up in contemporary debates, mm-hmm. whether it's the federal vision, whether it's the question of the baptism of children of believing parents, I have a, a large section in the book that also deals with an often controversial topic, that is the right. doctrine of election, and how covenant and election as themes in the scripture are related and as well dis- to be distinguished. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... I would say students theologically interested and curious, whether they're Baptists or a variety of confessional positions, would stand to have some profit, would profit in some ways from reading the book, or at least portions of the book. One of the things I say in the introduction is because of the genesis of the book, a variety of topics within Mm -hmm. the broader category of covenant theology... It's the sort of book you can take it up and read a chapter. Right. 
which is dealing with a particular issue that's especially uh, a concern of yours. You needn't read the whole of it. Right. But um, it, it does have unity nonetheless. I do broadly cover questions like, is there to, a distinction be, to be made between the covenant before the fall into sin? May we call that a covenant? Covenant of works and the covenant of grace. I deal with some old questions in Reformed theology like, what is unique to the Mosaic right. covenant or administration economy? Uh, was it a covenant of works in some sense? In distinction from right, a the new covenant in Christ? So there are a lot of questions, and some of those questions are not at all new. They're old questions, and they've been long discussed and disputed. And I don't pretend to have resolved them all, but I at least hope I've given something of a... No, this is the final, this is the final no, word, no, right? No, 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 there is no such thing. I, I, uh, I would like to think that the book provides a good place of orientation Okay. for, you don't have to agree with me, but at least... I try to set forth fairly what the discussion is, where the differences lie, right. and offer my argument for my view. That's helpful. I think that'll be really helpful for, for people to hear you kind of see your reasoning behind it. Um, I'm looking here at the contents of, of the book, and I see part one. It's about covenant of works and covenant of grace. There's some discussion about republication, which has been... Uh, I guess a uh, a topic of discussion, a heated topic of discussion in uh, late late years. Um, I talked about that a little bit um, on the podcast. The way that we should view uh, the mosaic economy um, is a different in some way um, than than others. Um, maybe uh, maybe a quick word from you about. Um, what you distill in in uh, greater length in the book uh, about a, uh, a your view upon the way that we should view uh, the mosaic economy and, and its correlation or its connection with the covenant. The main burden of my uh, <clears throat> argument is that <clears throat> the old language in Reformed theology always was that the covenant of grace, which typically is regarded to have had its formal uh, inauguration right. or formal administration initiated, commenced uh, between the Lord and his people Israel through, through Abraham. Abraham, Genesis right. 12, 15, 17, mm -hmm. key passages. But the, the typical formulation is, is there's one covenant of grace with one core promise right. that the fallen sinners with whom God covenants will be restored to life in fellowship with God and enjoy the benefits of the forgiveness of their sins, the cleansing and removal of the guilt and stain of their sin, the renewal of their lives mm -hmm. uh, for fellowship with God, and that in every one of the various economies or administrations, beginning with Abraham, then uh, Moses, David the king, the Davidic and theocratic constitution of the people of Israel as God's covenant people in a peculiar way, and then mm -hmm. in the fulfillment with the coming of the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ in the fullness of time, the so-called new covenant in his blood. This is one story about one great redemptive work on the part of the triune God, right. whereby he aims to restore 
to fellowship with himself from out of the fallen human race, the people whom he has appointed and uh, elected to eternal life, to enjoy the two great benefits of redemption, which are uh, the forgiveness of sins and free acceptance mm-hmm. and restoration to his favor, and at the same time, the renewal of their lives, and ultimately, in the New Covenant context, through the Spirit's work, renewing us after the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I find the so-called republication view of the Mosaic economy right. to be one that fails to do justice to the language that the covenant of grace in its administration is one in substance, though diverse in its administration. Right. Now, if the view were simply saying that the mediator whose blood alone can Mm -hmm. cleanse us from the guilt as well as the stain of our sin was not given other than under the shadow and type and figure of the Old Testament economy to Israel through Moses. Obviously, I have no problem with that. Right. I have no problem with saying that the covenant through Moses in its administration most definitely uh, reminds the children of Israel through the giving of the law. Yeah. Not only of, in it's interesting, in the, the giving of the, the law at Sinai, Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, as a summary of the covenantal requirements of the Lord, it's done in the context of redemption. Right. So it's a law given I'm the to, one who, gave, who brought you up out of right. Egypt. So this is how you then should live as my purchased possession, right? as a people set apart for fellowship with me and for a life of holiness. Even as I am holy, you are called to be holy. Right. And holiness looks like, takes the form of obedience to these requirements of the law. But what bothers me about the republication of the covenant of works view as it relates to the Mosaic economy is it tends to diminish that principal use of the law Mm -hmm. in the Mosaic administration that has nothing to do with if you obey these commandments, you will be redeemed. No, you are redeemed. Now, therefore, live in gratitude and devotion before me. In that sense, the law, if you use the term law in a broad way to refer to God's will for our lives, for the New Testament believer functions in the same way that it did under the forms and types and shadows of the Old Testament economy right. as a summons to new obedience in gratitude for a redemption already freely given. Israel did not become the people of the Lord through obedience to the requirements of the law of God any more than a New Testament believer is saved or more specifically justified by doing what the law requires, not by the works of the law, but through faith, the same faith that Abraham exhibited when he believed God and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. Uh, He trusted the promise. He looked to the Lord for his grace and mercy and thereby was saved. Mm -hmm. But they were not saved. What I would say about the Mosaic economy is it's preparatory. Right. The new is consummatory. It consummates. It Mm -hmm. gives that for which God's people were being prepared. The 
the rites and ceremonies of the law as it relates to sacrifice, particularly guilt and sin offerings, yeah. Levitical legislation. We know from the New Testament more clearly, but it was already true at the time of its being given through the Old Testament. Mm. There's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood, and the only blood shed that will ultimately procure our forgiveness is not the blood of bulls and goats, but the blood of the one mediator, Right. the argument of the book of Hebrews. So what I, what I object to in terms of those who seem to overstate Mm-hmm. the legal character of the mosaic economy is they set up a not merely a distinction between an administration that is preparatory that doesn't communicate the reality as fully and manifestly as does the new it's almost as though it becomes a legal covenant in conflict with in terms of its principle Right. Operating principle, namely, through obedience you obtain life. Now in the new covenant, through Christ and in faith in Christ you obtain life. It, it's hard for me to uh, square that with language like Paul's when he speaks of our falling um, heir to the promise God made to Abraham. Right. By the same means, which is faith in the promise of a mediator yet to come, Correct. the same mediator in whom we believe, uh, I think it it tends to do an injustice to the graciousness and the mercy that has become fully manifest now in Christ, that God's Old Testament people also under the oversight of the Mosaic economy knew under the Old Testament economy. Right. It's only when you separate the law as it was given through Moses from its setting within God's redemptive program covenantally that you could begin to construe it as a covenant of works in some Hmm. sense. And it's a whole complicated debate. But I think that the advocates of a so-called republication of the covenant of works in some sense under the Mosaic economy have done injustice to the sense in which we must insist that there's continuity at the Mm -hmm. most basic level. Uh, Now, of course, in fairness to republication advocates, they'll say, well, we agree it's in substance a covenant of grace. Uh, At a minimum, my argument would be that doesn't come to the foreground in their their exposition and description. It certainly isn't adequately set forth. The accent seems to fall more and more on it being a kind of legal economy. Uh, And as I sometimes jokingly say to my colleagues, if it were a legal economy like the one that obtained prior to the fall and the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die, Mm -hmm. failure to meet the obligation of personal and perfect obedience on Adam's part led to his immediate exclusion from the Garden of Eden. Right. Uh, I'm struck, as I say to my colleagues, by how long it took <laughs> the Lord in his patience and slowness to anger. Well, how many warnings he gave. suffering <laughs> mercy and steadfast loving kindness to bring Israel to a place where she is in exile. And right. even in exile, 
reiterates to his exiled Promises people of, yeah. that the principal promise, namely of grace and mercy and of granting to them the blessedness of life and fellowship with their Redeemer has not failed. Mm-hmm. He will carry forward even yes. through this, in a manner of speaking, temporary discipline and chastisement, which was Israel's right. exile. He will bring her, that people to whom he made the promise in the first place, to the appointed end of the covenant. And at no level in the New Old Testament did Israel ever experience a failure to enjoy uh, manifest tokens of, his, uh, of their God's mercy and grace, despite their from the beginning onward always falling short of being the kind of people God through his law called her to be. Be mm. blameless, he says to Abraham. Yeah. The standard of God's holy law in every relationship that God sustains with his creature is always the same. It's always going to be. It's the same in the new. Our Lord says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect even as your Father is perfect. Right. We fall short, but that's the standard. And that that was a standard to which Israel was held by no means makes God's dealings with Israel a kind of covenant of works administration. Uh, to sum it up, I think the note of God's grace, mercy, faithfulness, as it was manifested throughout that economy under the Old Testament circumstance, right. does not receive appropriate representation in the republication view. So we need to, we need to uh, look at the Old Testament and see the grace, the patience, the mercy of God um, it's it's there on display, full display, uh, even in the mosaic economy. I agree wholeheartedly. Um, part of my undertaking with this uh, series about covenant theology was to uh, emphasize the importance of seeing um, election within the context of covenant. I know part of what you said uh, you did with this book was how does covenant and election go together? How should they be distinguished? Uh, I'm curious uh, to hear some more of your thoughts upon that, um, because uh, I, I'm from a generation where you're seeing a resurgence of Calvinism in particular, you know, the doctrines of grace, five points of Calvinism. And, and what tends to happen is that uh, people who are in Baptistic churches or, you know, non-denominational evangelical churches um, come to this realization that, you know, Calvinism is is what the scriptures teach. Um, you know, Charles Spurgeon just says, you know, Calvinism is another uh, term for uh, biblical Christianity is uh, something that he's said before. Um, but within that, then, they say, okay, I'm a five-pointer. But that's, that's really all they get um, without really seeing that, um, you know, uh, when it comes to Calvin, the five points of Calvinism are like the tip of the iceberg, and they don't see that, all this other reform theology comes along with it, in particular, um, you know, a doctrine, a, a robust doctrine of covenant. Um, so, you know, maybe you could speak to some of, of those people who, uh, who listen to the podcast who, oh, I'm a five-pointer now, but that's all I've got, and I'm not really seeing that there's all this other um, beauty and worth of Scripture about God's covenant uh, with us. Um, 
maybe you could maybe you could speak to that a little bit more. I would be happy to do so with the acknowledgement that the question is a big one, and <laughs> it has also within the framework of a covenant theology reformed. The reformed theological tradition has wrestled with the question right. of exactly how to. In fact, many of our internal debates within the reformed theological tradition have focused exactly there. What's the distinction as well as relation obtaining between election and covenant? The simplest way I could sum it up is I view election as what the scriptures are teaching us regarding God's eternal purpose from before the foundation of the world to out of the fallen number, the whole mass of the fallen human race in Adam, those whom he, as a people, but also as individuals who comprise that people, right. those toward whom he has been pleased and is pleased to show mercy and to bring to salvation. Those whom he's elected, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, to enjoy all of the spiritual blessings that are theirs in Christ, unto adoption, unto holiness, right. those whom he predestined in love, and the like. That's one thing, to say that God has eternally within his counsel uh, purpose to save his people is not the same thing as to say, how does he propose to realize his purpose? Right. In what manner will he communicate the blessings that he obtains for his elect people through the work of Jesus Christ in history? Mm -hmm. And it seems to me covenant is the idiom, is the instrument the manner whereby God, he doesn't elect a person here and a person there. He works in history throughout the course of the history of redemption, first in the calling of Abraham and in Abraham of a people. Uh, Israel herself as a people is an elect nation, even as the church, Peter tells us, is an elect nation. Uh, the church is often described in the New Testament, in the letters of the Apostle Paul and others, as the beloved or elect people of God, mm -hmm. so that the work of God's grace by His Spirit and Word in history is covenantally accomplished. One of the great uh, theologians of the Reformed tradition, Herman Bavink, um, puts it this way, God was pleased and is pleased both in the Old Testament and in the New to gather his people from all the tribes and tongues and nations of the world, yeah. not, as I'm putting it, a discrete individual here and another there, but in the line of the generations. Hmm. So that when a people or a person is brought to faith, God works his grace not only in that person's life. A great example in the account in Acts of the gathering of the early church in the right. apostolic epoch is Lydia. Right. And when God brings it about that she opens her heart to believe the word of the gospel, it's the Lord who takes the initiative, mm -hmm. who opens her hearts, and the hearts of all those whom he's appointed unto eternal life. Right. But there's a covenantal texture to the way in which his purposes are realized. 
Household baptisms are the norm in the book of Acts. Now, admittedly, there are only a few such baptisms. Right. But it illustrates the point, the main point I'm wanting to make is the covenantal organic way in which God gathers those whom he's elected unto eternal life for salvation. Right. You have a, a lovely example of that right at the time of the Spirit's being poured out to empower the apostles to be his witnesses, God's witnesses, the Lord's witnesses, uh, beginning in Jerusalem, then in Samaria, Judea, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The very uh, first sermon preached in the mm -hmm. post-Pentecost epoch of God's great work of redemption is for the promises to you and to your children and as many as the Lord our God shall call unto him. Mm -hmm. Now there you have woven together in one simple yeah. beautiful promise the themes of election, as many as the Lord our God will call unto him. The, the language there is not calling in the lesser meaning right. of a general call. Effectual. It's a calling that effectually draws men and women, young and old, into fellowship through faith in Jesus Christ with the living God. And it's a, a call that is couched within the framework of an explicit and express reference to what God began to do already under the Old Covenant. The promise is to you and to your children. Mm -hmm. So my main point here is a little bit of a polemical point, <laughs> is if you purchase the biblical doctrine of election and you carry on with your studies yeah. of biblical theology, you must at some point reckon with the fact that God works his electing purposes covenantally. Hmm. And your ministry of the gospel, even if you say, I'm not a covenant theologian, I don't embrace the Reformed understanding of covenant, I'm a believer's Baptist, and so on, I don't have that well-developed view of the church and of its administration of means right. of grace, and so on and so forth, I would just encourage a steady diet of ongoing study and reading to see whether it isn't in fact true right. that God works his purposes of election covenantally. Or again, to use the Bavink expression, in the line of the generations. Hmm. Uh, Bavink's point in part there is to say that in redemption, God doesn't reject the ordinances of creation such as marriage, family. Wow. He enlists them in order to achieve. And I'm not arguing for uh, any such thing as a doctrine of baptismal regeneration right. or any kind of false presumption about the children, the believing parents who receive Christian baptism. They must and are obligated to, to respond to that yeah. promise in the way of faith and repentance. But I am arguing that even a little study of not biblical history but church history will illustrate the main point I'm making. So, How many believers have been discipled, brought, you might say, through the gospel to faith and repentance through a believing community and more narrowly the little church, which is the Christian family? 
Right. That's, that's ordinarily so the that way makes, God works. It is the ordinary way of his working. It was in the old covenant, and I'm suggesting it remains so in the new. And so uh, it's, a, it's a long answer to a, a pretty profound question, which right. is, can one affirm biblically what it teaches regarding election, but hold at arm's length this thing called the doctrine of the covenant. Mm -hmm. My contention would be uh, if you embrace the one, it's obviously question begging. I could be told by way of a retort. <laughs> well, the longer you read the scriptures, the more you'll see clearly a big difference between Old Testament administration and new, and in the new, the children are excluded and uh, all that kind course, of thing. Of course, of uh, course. But I, I love the old... Uh, B.B. Warfield mm -hmm. review of, I think it was Augustus Strong's book against infant baptism. <laughs> Warfield was a profound theologian who, like many theologians, myself included, talked in long, drawn-out sentences with all <laughs> kinds of subordinate <laughs> phrases. Yeah. But when he finally came to sum it up, he said, God put them in, that is the children in the old. He has nowhere put them out in the new. So who are we anyway to put them out? And so we're going to nurture and raise our children within a covenantal framework, impressing the gospel promise and calling them to live accordingly and trusting God mm. that he'll use these means to bring them, not necessarily all of them without exception, but in a way that is consistent with the promise he will use that to bring them promises to you and your children and to as many as the Lord our God shall call unto him. Amen, amen. I know that uh, as we've been going through the catechism in the evening, we just got through recently the the section on misery or, you know, sin. And uh, it can be pretty rough when you're there, you know, drilling home the fact that uh, in Adam we we're all fallen into sin. We're not only, uh, we, didn't, we not only sin, but we're born in sin. Um, and then I asked the question, so why do we, you know, why do we have children then if we, if this is, if this is their fate, you know, yeah. the first thing that we give to our children is, is not our love or our compassion or our care or anything like that. It's, um, uh, it's an inherited sinful fallen depraved nature of, of Adam. Uh, well, because of the promise, that's why we have, that's why we have children because we believe that, uh, uh, God has promised, um, that he will be our God and our children's God, and that we trust in his ordinary working that he will bring, uh, if they believe that he will bring about uh, faith in them and uh, that they will have union with Christ. And, and those are those things that we, they, we lean into as parents uh, who wish nothing more than to see our, our children come to faith in Jesus Christ and try to nurture that in them. If I may make one comment here, I have a chapter in my book, two chapters actually, on an often discussed question. I saw that. With the election of children, especially the children of believing parents. Mm -hmm. And in the history of non-covenantal theology, especially Baptistic theology, the only way you can get any of those children saved elect and saved or have any reason to believe that God would be gracious to any of them right. 
is to argue some kind of idea that until you reach an age of discretion, old mm-hmm. enough to respond on your own to the gospel call, mm-hmm. they're in a kind of state of innocency. Right, so sort of age and of accountability. And not to be held accountable for their fallen estate as fallen sinners in Adam. I just came across this passage in Bavink recently where Bavink, the Reformed theologian, makes the observation that the Reformed view of covenant and its relation to election right. places the Reformed theolo- theologian in a far more... Um, a far better position to be able to affirm that if God so wills in his grace and purpose to save for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, whether it be infants who are the children of believing parents, right, or as the Westminster Confession puts it in chapter 10, elect infants, whomever they are, that's not given to us to know, but it certainly is within the prerogative of God triune that he should show them mercy. Right. The Reformed tradition is in a position to affirm something there that no one who rejects altogether that God should make promise or intend to bring to salvation such children in a way that doesn't employ the usual means. Right. There, there's just really no, uh, there's no theological answer that you can give that has any, in my judgment, satisfactory uh, weight or cogency to make that kind of an affirmation. Whereas in the history of Reformed theology, it's often been affirmed. The canons of Dort affirm mm-hmm. that uh, because we make judgments about God's grace and his purpose toward us on the basis of his word, Believing parents, in the event that the Lord should call their children to himself in their infancy, perhaps immediately upon birth or before birth, and apart from their having been a recipient of the word or baptized into the fellowship of the Christian church, uh, they should have confidence regarding God's uh, electing grace and the salvation of such children. Hmm. Now, that gets you into, I have two chapters. It's a big, complicated (laughs) topic. I only use it as an illustration. Uh, Reformed theology and the Reformed churches historically, although they're often judged to be very restrictive in their view of those whom God elects, actually are at liberty to say, well, it's God's prerogative and within his purview and ability, if he so wills, Because we don't make the salvation of anyone depend upon our will, firstly. Right. It's ultimately uh, by virtue of his grace mm. and grace alone. God's initiative, God's intention, that's the only basis for a sure or confidence that right. uh, there are those who who are without number whom God will save. Right. And I think that's, that's deeply pastoral. Um, I consider, you know, in that same category, not only uh, infants who uh, pass away in infancy or uh, if a family has a miscarriage or something like that, but also uh, um, families with children who have some form of mental disability or or inability to um, 
um, to function mentally uh, in a capacity that's um, that would be uh, normal for others. Um, if you have to have some sort of category of, of content that you're able to uh, have to be able to affirm or be able to agree that you believe that, um, what hope does do to people like that uh, have children like that who have mental disabilities? Um, we trust in the promise of God in those those situations um, when when we have those areas that we uh, that we deal with pastorally. So I think that's greatly um, beneficial to consider those uh, realities. Well, I think uh, we've uh, spent a decent amount of time talking about Christ and covenant, and uh, I really appreciate the time that you've spent with uh, me, Dr. Venema, and I really think that uh, the listeners will benefit uh, from it as well. I do want to mention um, one more time that Christ and Covenant Theology is a, a PNR uh, publication. It can be uh, purchased on Amazon or on PNR's website, um, and uh, would uh, I'm sure uh, greatly appreciate it if you guys went out and, and purchased the book and uh, read some of the essays uh, contained there within and gained a lot of uh, um, valuable knowledge from doing so. Dr. Venom, I give you uh, one last opportunity to let people know where they can get a hold of you or uh, learn more about your other resources. This is not the only book you've written. You've written uh, other books as well. Um, just to give you an opportunity to kind of give a, a shout-out to them to let you know, let them know, the listeners know, uh, where to find more of your resources or more, more about you. Or. I would say that the easiest way would be to check the seminary's website. Mm-hmm. It's midamericanohyphen.edu. You can get addresses of various professors, myself included, email address, and the like. Or if you go to Amazon, I think, I believe, the last time I looked, most of the books and so that I've written that have been published are available through Amazon. I think there's even a page. An author's profile. An author's profile page. So it would be very easy to... If you go to Amazon, find that material. Sounds good. Thank you so much, Dr. Veneman, once again. And thank you all for listening to another special episode of Five for Fruit. Do me a favor. Go read the Belgic Confession this week. Until next time. It's shocking Jesus died for me. The father he adopted me and constantly provides for me. Whether or not I got degrees, you gotta see his odyssey from sovereignty and lottery to poverty and robbery to resurrected bodily apocalyptic prophecy. He's stopping all the mockery and scholarly snobbery that don't acknowledge him properly. You ought to be on bended knee before the preeminent. It's awfully arrogant to reject him to your detriment. Study the development from Old and New Testament. You'll find a theme that's prevalent from age to age. It's relevant. Crisis on his center stage. Forget religious sentiments that center on man for something less is what you're settling he is the most excellent exercising benevolence and blessing a remnant with the benefits of his inheritance yeah. the sin of sinners that separated and segregated that severed the relations between man and his maker and placed Christ on his costly cross and compensated his life death and resurrection emancipated and gave us freedom from it all freedom from the effects of the fall freedom from Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden and from the law so the saints stand and applaud his grace and glorious cause with hands
Christ raised, praising his name, singing glory to God. Pfeiffer Fruit is a proud member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Check out more members of the Society at reformedpodcasts.com. Subscribe, rate, and review Pfeiffer Fruit on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And visit the website pfeifferfruit.com to listen to past episodes and to read articles. Until next time, this is Pfeiffer Fruit, your five-minute fix for Reformed theology and practice.